Welcome to Give Methods a Chance. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Rachel O'Neill, a fellow in the Department of Media and Communications at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Rachel discusses the work of contemporary theorist Rosalind Gill. Rachel introduces us to Gill's writings on post-feminism and mediated intimacy. Rachel also demonstrates the value of these concepts through discussion of her own research on the seduction community, which is the subject of her 2018 book titled Seduction, Men, Masculinity, and Mediated Intimacy. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We are here today to talk about Rosalind Gill. I'm wondering if you could just give us a short introduction to who she is or probably more importantly, what she's known for. So Rosalind Gill is a professor of cultural and social analysis in the Department of Sociology here in London, so at City University of London. Her work covers a wide range of different areas. I think she'd primarily be identified as a feminist media scholar, feminist cultural studies scholar, and her work I suppose could be delineated into about three areas, or that would be my reading of it. So the first would be in relation to gender in the media. So she's done a lot of work on ideas of post-feminism, the sexualization of culture, on mediated intimacy. A second area of her work is on labor and creative industries. And here she's done work on ideas such as aesthetic labor or beauty work. She's done analysis of the kind of labor and work cultures of academia, making comparisons to different kinds of cultural laborers, including thinking about toxic academia. And she's also done a lot of work on discourse analysis and using discourse analysis. So she has some early work that I think is really formative and really useful for students in particular on how to do discourse analysis. But discourse analysis is a method that she's also developed and honed over the years in relation to a number of different projects. So recent work on love your body discourse, for example, and on conference confidence culture. So those would be the the three kind of areas of scholarship that I would identify as being key to her overall body of scholarship. Do you have a sense that she's widely read in the larger discipline and and by discipline, I mean sociology here, or is it more that she's read in specific subfields? So areas like media studies or or gender? Mm -hmm. I think she's particularly in British sociology, she would be extremely well known and very well regarded, very well cited and so forth. So she'd be very well known in in the British context, in sociology, uh, in media and cultural studies scholarship, in psychology as well. I'm less clear about the the American context, but I think that this is less about Rosalind Gill as an individual and more about how sociology coming from the British context is actually read and engaged with in the U.S. context. The power of the ocean constantly amazes me, and this is true in sociology, mm-hmm. but also all the neighboring disciplines, geography, gender studies, cultural studies. Absolutely. I think that in the UK context, this, this is work that would be very much at the center of the discipline. And Roz would be one among a number of scholars who, who would be positioned as uh, kind of at the forefront of British sociology and cultural studies. Shifting to your own experience, when did you first become aware of these ideas? So I first read Roz's work way back in 2008-2009 when I was undertaking a master's in gender studies at the London School of Economics and Political Science. And I was introduced to her work as part of a course I was taking on gender and media. And it was an article that she'd written back in 2003 in feminist media studies called From Sexual Objectification to Sexual Subjectification, the Resexualization of Women's Bodies in the Media. And when I read this article, I just had this uncanny sense of recognition. She was describing a reality that had confronted me and confounded me in various ways for a couple of years at that point. 
And it was incredible to see somebody just elucidate that dynamic so clearly, whereby we had this real shift in the media about how women's bodies were regarded. So it was less a dynamic of women being sexually objectified in a kind of classic male gaze kind of a way, and more actually that women were self-objectifying or were presenting themselves as sexual subjects who were kind of up for it and available and engaging and indulging in their own sexuality. Um, But in a way that served to kind of reinscribe more conventional patterns of objectification. So it was this really confusing and contradictory dynamic. And that article, for me, really fully encapsulated and explained what was going on. And it was something that had been bothering me for some time, but which I hadn't seen anyone put a label to or, or theorize in any in any serious way or thoroughgoing way. So for me, it was absolutely revelatory at the time. And I was lucky enough then that Roz came and gave a guest lecture during my master's program. And I was able to go and talk to her at the end of it. I don't know if she'd remember this now, but to just say to her that this article had been so influential in my thinking and it had really helped me pinpoint a dynamic that had, as I've said, has had bothered me for some time, but that I, I couldn't really elucidate very well. That is such an amazing opportunity to be able to talk to a theorist that is inspiring the way you think And it's so different than the majority of guests who I interview on this podcast who are talking about people been dead for 100 years, right? (laughs) No, it was a phenomenal experience. I think, I mean, I I barely remember what I said to her. I don't think I was able to string a sentence together. I was just so incredibly impressed by her. But she was very warm and kind and, you know, was very keen to hear about what it is that I was doing in my master's and my dissertation work. And and we, we kept in contact after that. So the topic immediately drew you in because she was explaining something in the world that you were also encountering or or experiencing on a day-to-day basis. Do you recall what it was like when you first read her writing? And the reason I ask that is there's so many theorists where the writing actually is a barrier to entry, right? It doesn't draw you in. And I'm curious with this more contemporary scholar who inspired you, what was it like when you first picked up a text? Roz's writing style is is very accessible. And I think that this is something that she's quite committed to academically and intellectually and politically. So her writing is, is very much accessible. Her book, for example, Gender in the Media, is widely assigned on undergraduate teaching. It's something that I think your average person could could pick up and, and, and take a lot from. So she writes in a very accessible way. And this is something that I think for her is, is, is an important thing to do in order to ensure that these ideas are able to, to travel in the world, are able to be picked up and, and utilized by others. So thankfully, you know, it was something that I was, you know, even as a master's student was able to read and engage with in quite a, a lucid and, and fluid way. I would say those are terms that I would, I would use to characterize her writing style, very lucid, very fluid. What was it like after you first engaged with her work? Was it this type of thing where you sat on it for a while, you went out and did other things and eventually returned? Or was it this more immediate connection? I have continued to write and think and be in dialogue in various ways with Roz ever since that that first meeting. So as I said, it was a a couple of maybe a a year or two before we saw each other again. And that was in the context of myself applying for uh, a PhD. And I ended up working with Roz um, over the next four or five years at that point for for my PhD research. So she was my, my PhD supervisor. 
And we've, we've stayed in touch all that time. And her writing has been a key reference point for me throughout that period. And also as a, an interlocutor, she's been a phenomenal person to work with. I mean, she was really an incredible supervisor, hugely conscientious, gave a huge amount of, of time to, to me and to her other students, um, engaging with our work, pushing our ideas, but also very much giving, giving us the space um, to, to develop our own thinking, you know, in dialogue with her work, but never, never dominating, never kind of presuming that, that her work should, should be the key reference point. So it's been an incredible journey, I suppose, over the last 10 years of a kind of continual dialogue and exchange of ideas in our writing to and with one another, but also in the kind of conversations that we've had, you know, sitting down over a cup of coffee or, you know, in a, in a PhD supervision meeting and so forth. You mentioned earlier that you can kind of categorize Rosalind Gill's work into these three different areas of focus. And I was hoping that you could just take one or two of them and explain how they inspired your own work. So there would be probably two ideas that I, I, would, I could talk about in that regard. And that what I, I would think of as being not only important to myself and my own thinking, but also to you know the students that I work with, to people who are thinking within the context or researching the context of gender and media much more widely. So the first would be post-feminism and the second would be that of, of mediated intimacy. So I'll, I'll lead with the first on post-feminism. Perfect. So Roz has an article that came out, I believe in 2007, in European Journal of Cultural Studies, which put forward the idea of post-feminism as a sensibility that characterizes contemporary media culture. And this article, I mean, I think it would be hard to overstate how influential this has been, how much of a keystone text this has become in, again, sociology, media and cultural studies, and so forth. And this article looks at the way in which a new kind of entanglement has developed within contemporary media culture between feminist and anti-feminist ideas, feminist and anti-feminist themes and sentiments. And what Roz does in this piece is she goes beyond looking at just a couple of media texts, so the kind of preeminent texts of post-feminism that had been analyzed heretofore at that point were things such as Sex and the City, for example, the American uh, television show. And instead of looking at just a couple of texts, she looks at how this sensibility has come to characterize media culture much more broadly. So across a wide range of media, not simply within this particular TV show, but across advertising, film, television, and at its more nascent stage, social media also. And the key point that she, she puts forward in this idea is, is thinking of post-feminist media culture and thinking of post-feminism as a sensibility. So not thinking about it as an historical moment, you know, something that comes after feminism, not thinking about it as the position of the analyst. So Roz is not at all a post-feminist analyst. Uh, she is a feminist analyst of post-feminist media culture, which is a, a really important distinction. And as I've said, what's really important about the, the way that she puts this idea forward is that it very clearly delineates the different elements that have to come together or that can come together to characterize a post-feminist media culture. So in the article, she gives eight different aspects or elements of a, a post-feminist sensibility. I'll just name a couple of them. So femininity as a bodily property is one, the idea that femininity is the site of women's agency. It's something that women invest in cultivating in a bodily sense, in a corporeal sense. She also looks at how ideas of individualism, choice, and empowerment have become predominant across the media sphere. And again, here we see the, the entanglement of feminist and anti-feminist themes. Also ideas of the makeover paradigm, something that is almost paradigmatic in, in contemporary media. So the, the before and after, the idea of working on and changing the self, improving the self. 
So this, this article has been hugely influential because it so clearly delineates the different elements that come to construe a post-feminist sensibility. It's something that when I, when I teach it, students immediately grasp onto this. And I would say grasp onto this even more than other articulations of post-feminism or other theorizations of post-feminism, in part because it's, it's so clear, it's so readily identifiable because she's done the work of actually elucidating what those different elements are. So when I'm working with very international cohorts of students, I'm working with students from China, India, South Africa, the US, each of them will be able to see how these kinds of dynamics are playing out in media culture across a wide range of settings. And so this is really, really useful text that, that Roz has produced and that she's continued to develop again over the last kind of 10 or, or 12 years since that piece has come out. Great. And then the second idea you were going to talk about was mediated intimacy. Yeah. So this this is another key concept that Roz is responsible for and has more recently written about with, with colleagues uh, MJ Barker and Laura Harvey. So again, it goes back to an earlier journal article, so a piece in Discourse and Communication back in 2009. But as I've said, Roz more recently co-authored book on this that came out just last year. The idea of mediated intimacy in the early piece that she, she did was to look at how sex and relationship advice is construed in, in women's magazines. So if we recognize that these magazines put forward all of these kinds of ideas about how we should live and how we should relate to other people, she was interested in understanding what the, the various dynamics of that are. And in that regard, she, she looks at how, again, a post-feminist sensibility has become embedded in sex and relationship advice, specifically in, in women's magazines and in the early work that she did in this area. And again, she, she identifies some key registers or ways in which this is put across or put forth. So one is of intimate entrepreneurship, the idea of, of working on and investing in sex and intimacy. Another is menology, the idea that men are a, a separate and, and different species from women that can be known and studied. And the idea here is how women can learn to, to please and appease men. And then the third idea is that of transforming the self. So the remaking of, of sexual subjectivity. So the idea of being confident and loving your body, but also trying new things in relation to sex and intimacy. Um, always being ready to kind of upskill oneself, to retool your sexual repertoire and so forth. And what these ideas, when they come together in, in sex and relationship advice media really do, is to articulate a vision of sexual subjectivity as something to be worked on, changed, transformed, upgraded, updated, and so forth. And specifically, women. Women are being called forth to do this, and women are being addressed as heterosexual subjects who, who should be doing this in relation to and for men. So again, we see this articulation and this entanglement of feminist and anti-feminist themes where essentially ideas that in any other context, if we're thinking about these ideas in a, maybe an earlier moment, they would have been understood as about pleasing men. You know, if you're learning, you know, what do men like? What should I do for my man? How can I keep him in a relationship and so forth? That's very clearly about men. And yet the, the guys or the register through which this was communicated in women's magazines is very much about pleasing yourself, about doing something for yourself. And so again, you have this kind of this register, this, this dynamic of, of liberation and empowerment. And then in the more recent work that, that Ross has been doing with MJ and Laura, the, their scholarship on mediated intimacy, which is a book that they published with Polity just last year, actually looks at media much more broadly. So not looking solely at sex and relationship advice media or any kind of media that is explicitly advice orientated, but looking at media much more widely. So again, thinking about, about film, advertising, social media, and so on. 
And what they identify in this book by looking across a, a range of different mediums and, and genres is that intimacy, first of all, is a major pre preoccupation of contemporary culture. And again, that to the way in which intimacy is understood across a wide range of media is as something to be invested in, to be worked on, to be retooled in, in some way. And so their, their work then shows and, and explores how intimacy is understood through and, and expressed through the register of post-feminism as well as neoliberalism. So again, this idea of the, the entrepreneurial self who's seeking to upgrade themselves, to improve themselves in various ways. And so in my, in my own work, the idea of mediated intimacy has been really useful as a way of thinking about the dynamic between culture and subjectivity. And again, that is a, a kind of core preoccupation of, of Rosgill's work and thinking about how that is actually then and for my work, I'm interested in how that actually gets lived out and experienced on the ground. So where Raz's work has focused primarily on media texts, I've been interested in, in thinking about and exploring ethnographically how is it that these ideas, these, these registers or modes of interpolation actually get lived out and experienced by located subjects in everyday life. Could you talk a little bit more about your research and in particular what group you were conducting your ethnographic study on and how the idea of mediated intimacy actually played out? Sure. So, so last year I published a book called Seduction, Men, Masculinity, and Mediated Intimacy. So the, the link to, to Roz's work is, is clear there. And this was based on my, my PhD research, which, as I said, Roz supervised, so was, was very influential in, in my thinking. And essentially this work presents or provides an ethnography of the so-called seduction community. So this is a community, I think it's better understood, in fact, as an industry because there are significant commercial interests involved here. But essentially, it's a cultural formation that offers heterosexual men various forms of skills, training and self-development programs so that they can realize or, you know, the, the promise is that they will be able to realize greater choice and control in their intimate lives. So greater choice and control in their relationships with women specifically. And the reason why I felt it was useful to use the framing of mediated intimacy in relation to this cultural formation, first of all, was because I felt that the existing frameworks of understanding the seduction community were inadequate. So it's usually thought about as either a subculture or a self-help movement. And for me, neither of these was entirely correct empirically or, or useful theoretically. So in relation to the seduction industry or the seduction community as a subculture, this implies that it's quite bounded, it's quite alternative, it's quite underground. And again, I, I don't think that that's true either empirically and is, is not especially useful theoretically. And then in relation to the idea of it being a self-help movement, I think that there, this is somewhat more accurate. There are definitely self, strong self-help logics within this community. But at the same time, what the language of self-help doesn't get across is the fact that this is an area of self-development that is very much about being a certain kind of gendered subject. So it's about particular ways of being a man and particular ways of engaging heterosexuality. So at a theoretical and empirical level, I felt that the language of mediated intimacy was much more useful as a way of characterizing what this cultural formation is. But I also had the sense that this was a really useful framing to draw across and to put across the ways in which the kind of advice, the kind of expertise that's elaborated within the seduction community is actually entirely continuous with the kind of sex and relationship advice that we see elsewhere that's available in broader media culture. So how sex and intimacy is understood in the seduction community is very much in keeping with how sex and intimacy are understood on a much wider plane. And so for this reason, I, I felt it was, it was quite a useful way of of approaching the seduction community. But in terms of how I actually pick it up in the book and, and you utilize that conceptual framework in the book, again, as I've said, 
I am trying to expand on, on Roz's work in first dimension is really by going beyond a concern with text. So yes, in the book, I'm looking at the various media that the seduction industry produces. So all kinds of books and blogs and video content, but I go beyond a concern with text themselves. So with representation, really, in order to understand how it is that mediated intimacy gets lived out in experience. So how is it that men take up this system of expertise? How does this kind of advice play into the moment when they approach a woman, the moment that they, they go to bed with a woman? How do these kinds of ideas actually get into the stuff of lived experience, really? And in that regard, I was also interested in thinking about how, I mean, the, the, the framing of mediated intimacy and the word mediate, we think about typically as about liaising, arbitration, conciliation. You know, mediate means essentially, or in day-to-day parlance, it, it means to bring things together. But based on what I was seeing through my ethnographic research in the seduction industry, I became very interested in thinking about mediate in the more classic Latin sense. So the Latin root of mediate actually means placed in the middle. So instead of thinking about mediated as intimacy as something that brings particular forms of relationships into being, I was also interested in how it negates certain forms of being and relating. So what what is not possible when we think of sex and intimacy in this way? That was kind of a, a key key question for the book. And then finally... The, the last thing that the book does and that this project does is to bring scholarship about mediated intimacy as well as post-feminism into the terrain of men and masculinity studies. And this is something that I think is interesting, that there, there's been a real lack of dialogue between feminist scholarship on post-feminism and sociological scholarship on men and masculinities. There's, there's been almost no overlap or conversation between, between these two areas. And so this is something that I, I tried to do in the book. Can you say more about that? So Mm -hmm. what does it look like when you take this idea of post-feminism and then you go into this site where you're looking at men and masculinity? um, What what does that actually show us in the case of your research or maybe society at large? Within sociological approaches to men and masculinity, the idea of hegemonic masculinity has become really dominant. So if you are teaching any undergraduate class or any even postgrad class on men and masculinities, you know, that will probably provide the core framework of thinking. And essentially hegemonic masculinity is a way of thinking about and understanding the hierarchies that exist between different kinds of masculinity and between differently positioned or situated men out in the world. And I, I do think it's a useful concept in lots of ways, but I felt that the debates within men and masculinity studies around hegemonic masculinity had become really entrenched, somewhat stayed, and I, I didn't really want to spend too much time engaging with them and, and arguing that there's a kind of new variant of hegemonic masculinity being formed. So what I do in the book instead is to focus on masculine subjectivity and to use this as a way of thinking very much in the kind of framework that Roz's work provides in always thinking about this relationship between culture and subjectivity about how it is that neoliberal logics and post-feminist logics get under men's skin. How do men become particular kinds of subjects? How is masculine subjectivity shaped by the fact that men are negotiating a context that would be described as post-feminist? So it's the, again, the entanglement of feminist and anti-feminist themes. There's an idea that gender equality has been taken into account, that feminist demands have been taken into account. So how are men positioned within this kind of landscape? How do they negotiate this sensibility? How do they feel about it? What do they do with it? How does the logic of women as being empowered and liberated actually play into how men think about women's positioning in the world and their own positioning vis-a-vis women? But also in relation to neoliberalism and the way in which mediated intimacy provides a way of thinking about how entrepreneurial logics and, and market logics have become 
embedded and have infiltrated to intimate life. How is it that that is being worked out in an area such as the seduction industry? So how is it that men conduct themselves or come to conduct themselves as sexual entrepreneurs, as intimate entrepreneurs, where they are engaging with women in modalities that are dictated by dynamics of efficiency and effectivity. So they're, they're trying to approach their intimate life very much in the, in the mode of, of an entrepreneur. So I found that this was, again, the language of, of mediated intimacy was a, re- a really useful way of framing and understanding and approaching the seduction industry as a cultural formation, in part because I think it's a much more novel way of, of entering into these debates and, and the, this kind of thinking on, on men and masculinities. Um, but also because empirically it seemed the best way of actually describing what I was seeing in front of me. So as you were conducting your research on the seduction community and you were making effort to avoid just falling into that trap of using Connell's hegemonic masculinity and letting that be the whole story, did you find other scholars that were particularly useful for understanding the masculinity that you were exploring? I think in relation to the masculinities literature, people whose work I find really useful and inspiring in lots of different ways. So CJ Pasco has done a, a, an amazing ethnography of masculinity in high school. So her book, uh, Dude, You're a Fag, is just an incredible resource um, for scholars, for students alike. Um, I also found a lot of ethnographic and anthropological work on masculinities really useful. So Andrea Cornwall um, has put together, she has two collections, co-edited collections, one from about 20 years ago called Dislocating Masculinity and another just a couple years old on masculinities under neoliberalism. And she brings together, along with her co-authors, scholarship from many different parts of the world, thinking ethnographically about masculinity. And I think this this work for me has been been really, really useful. Again, I suppose because I, I kind of straddle a number of different fields. I'm, I'm a sociologist, but I do a lot of work in media and cultural studies. And so what's useful for me about the ethnographic work is the stuff of lived experience. How, how are these things being worked out on the ground? So moving beyond, as I've said, a concern with representation to understanding how these things actually get lived out in, in day-to-day life. I like to ask guests to reflect on how their relationship to a theorist or a theorist ideas have changed over their career. And I'm really interested in how you answer this question because even though you haven't had a career that spanned decades yet, you have a personal relationship with Rosalind Gill, which is an exception, as we've talked about before. So how has your relationship to the work changed as you've moved from someone who was first hearing about these ideas to someone who has finished writing your own book? It's been fantastic. I mean, it's such an incredible privilege to be in in dialogue in a real way with somebody whose work is so formative for your own and to actually be able to ask them questions about what their thinking is and and to discuss and at times debate or argue with them. And I think something that's been interesting for me recently is that Roz has started to to rethink or reconsider some of her earlier work on post-feminism. So I'll just mention a a piece that she put out earlier this year in the journal Feminist Theory with uh, Sarah Bene Weiser and Catherine Rottenberg. So the three of these scholars are coming together to think about the shifting terrain of feminism and post-feminism. So in the last few years in the UK and the US and many other different parts of the world, we've seen this resurgence of interest in and attention to feminism. And this kind of complicates ideas of of post-feminism. So how do we think about post-feminism in a cultural terrain where feminism is once again 
being embraced or certain kinds of feminism are once again being embraced and deemed popular. So you have the kind of signal cultural moments of this, you know, Beyonce in front of the feminist sign, Sheryl Sandberg and her lean in manifesto. And in this article, these three scholars come together to to rethink and to to argue for different kinds of understandings of the contemporary moment. So, you know, is this post-feminism or is this popular feminism or is this neoliberal feminism? And how do these different concepts shape and articulate with one another? And something that's been interesting for me in, in this regard is having discussions with, with Roz about whether or not the language of post-feminism is, is useful anymore. And she seems to be a, a little bit ambivalent. She certainly thinks that post-feminism as a sensibility continues to characterize contemporary media culture. And so for that reason is analytically not just useful, but but absolutely crucial. However, she's become a little bit uncertain about the use of the language of post-feminism because students today that she's working with often find it somewhat confusing, you know, in this kind of era marked by new, new interest in feminism. And so I've had conversations with Roz recently where I feel I'm almost defending some of her earlier scholarship because I continue to see such purchase in that work. And I continue to see when I'm working with students, it's something that they really gravitate towards and, and grab onto to understand the way in which they're experiencing the world. And so we've had some interesting conversations recently where she's raised some kind of questions around this this language, at least, if not the full concept, whereas I'm, I'm very much still attached to this concept as, as a way of thinking about the world in the contemporary media sphere. So it's been an interesting development in, in that regard. But I suppose it, it's difficult to summarize 10 years of a relationship now. But again, I suppose I would just emphasize that it's such a privilege to be able to to be in direct dialogue with somebody who's you know such an influential figure in the field, but but also such a generous scholar who's so continuously willing to engage with other people's ideas and to learn and discuss with them. I really appreciate that answer because not only are you showing that Rosalind Gill is just an awesome person, but it's also a reminder that we don't freeze a theorist idea, right? Theorist ideas are always developing. You end up being the one who's protecting your ideas <laughs> rather than the person who wrote them down. Mm -hmm. To transition to a final question, I like to ask, imagine you were standing in front of a room of undergraduates, grad students, faculty, maybe a lot of American faculty, so crossing over the ocean, and you were making an argument for why they should engage with Rosalind Gill's work, why they should pick up these books, pick up these articles and read them. So what would you say to that audience? So one thing I suppose I would emphasize again is the the accessibility of Ross's work. So, I mean, her work is something that people from a wide range of different disciplines or who are not engaged in academic study at all will still be able to read and engage with and understand. She's excellent at providing examples and working those out in detail. So, I mean, again, for, for teaching, her work is just absolutely fantastic. And I mean teaching in the broader sense, not only when you have undergrads in the classroom, but also when you're discussing ideas at political events or in activist circles, for example. Her, I found her work to be invaluable in those kinds of settings and something that, again, people really kind of gravitate towards and, and grab onto. I think one of the things that what makes her work so useful is, and important is, first of all, in understanding this very dynamic, very complicated connection and, and relationship between culture and subjectivity. So one of the phrasings that she uses is, you know, how do we understand what's out there, quote unquote, gets in here, quote unquote. So how do we understand how it is that we develop very particular ways of, of being in the world and understanding the world that is absolutely shaped by our wider social and cultural setting. And this is something that I think a lot of people will find really, really useful and important because they'll come to see how it is that things that they would maybe 
understand about themselves as being located and particular and individual and idiosyncratic are actually part of broader socio-historical formations, shifting cultural trajectories. And in this regard, I think one of the things that's really powerful about Rosa's work is the attention that she gives to dynamics of contemporary capitalism, to neoliberal capitalism, and how different kind of, of gendered and racialized and classed modalities are, are worked out in and through this, this broader cultural terrain or this cultural conjuncture, again, in the language of, of cultural studies. So I think her work is incredibly useful in understanding contemporary dynamics of gender, sexuality, and how the media operates in a very complicated way. The way we engage with media is complicated. The way that culture shapes individual life and individual subjectivity is very complex. And this is something that I think her work offers a really useful and elegant understanding of. Perfect. Thanks again for joining us today. I really appreciate it. That's been great. Thanks so much for having me again. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme music, undergraduate sociologists Beth Heberger, Alicia Rios, and Simone Graham for their help with the project, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance. Thank you.